Welcome to a special edition of Green Minds Podcast, a podcast series of the Southeast Sustainability Directors Network on pioneer practitioners in regenerative design. These organizations are supported by the Candida Fund, an Atlanta-based foundation that invests in transformative leadership and ideas and creates a more just and equitable world. Learn more about their work at CandidaFund.org. I'm Laurel Creech and Katherine Mercer-Baggett is my co-host. These three episodes of the Green Minds podcast, Catherine Mercer Baggett and I speak to pioneers and leaders in regenerative design. On this episode, two parts kick off first with Dennis Creech. He's the Fund Advisor for Sustainability and the idea behind this regenerative design series. All of the organizations that Catherine and I will be speaking with have received funding from the Candida Fund, and we want to hone in on the work that they're doing around regenerative design. First, we'll kick off as I interview Dennis Creech with the Candida Fund, and then we're going to head on over to Catherine Mercer Baggett as she has a conversation with Sean Aurora with the director of the Candida Building at the Georgia Tech Institute. And Catherine had the opportunity to tour the building before the interview, so she has a hands-on experience as she speaks to Sean. So here is the first of three-part episode of Green Minds Podcast, focused on regenerative design, thanks to the Candida Fund. And this episode of the Green Minds Podcast features Dennis Creech. Dennis is the Fund Advisor for Sustainability, and so excited to have the opportunity to talk to him. It was Dennis's idea to have this podcast series on regenerative design as they prepare for a gathering in November with thought leaders on this topic. So here is my conversation with Dennis Creech of the Candida Fund here on the Green Minds Podcast. Hello, I'm Laurel Creech. I'm the Green Minds Podcast, and I'm very excited to have with me special guest today, Dennis Creech. No relation, by the way, but how's it going, Dennis? Oh, I'm doing great, Laurel. It's uh, not often to, to meet a fellow Creech. <laughs> yes, I know there are not that many out there, and uh, embrace it while, while we can. Certainly, um, you know, you and I have had the conversation to somehow maybe w- where we may have been related, and maybe down way back down down the road, there may have been some sort of relations. And it's um, great that we're both in the realm of and passionate about sustainability, which is even more rare uh, to have a creech in 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 this field. Well, you know, I, I've heard more than the question more than once. Are you related to Laurel Creech over in Nashville? They're doing some great stuff in sustainability. So, so thanks for uh, <laughs> having a name that gives, gives me a little street cred. Well, right back at you, Dennis, with the Candida Fund and all the work you've done with South Face. So definitely right back at you. Um, well, I'm excited to have you on, and I, I know most, most folks probably do know about the Candida Fund, but just if you can give a little bit of a review of what the Candida Fund is and the work that you specifically do around sustainability. Well, the Candida Fund is a, is a donor-driven foundation, um, and so the tagline that, that um, we use that I like is, we invest in transformative leaders and ideas. And we support a, a, a wide range of areas that our donor, Diana Blank, has. And it ranges from energy to the arts, from social and racial, racial justice to education. And so uh, and I, my role at the Candida Fund is to manage a portfolio that focuses on sustainable design, sustainability issues, really a better term there, 
uh, in the Southeast. And certainly, Dennis, with your experience in, in starting and running South Face for um, over three decades and now coming over to the Candida Fund, you had, a, a I would envision, a good sense of certainly from a regional perspective, the sustainability needs and how Candida can step in and be an enhancer and a supporter for those needs in our regional community. Well, it's true. And, and I've been at Candida for, for five wonderful years, uh, working with some great grantees. But before that, I was fortunate enough to be a grantee of the Candida Foundation. And I, I really came to appreciate um, how, how unique um, their approach to, to philanthropy was. Uh, you know, kind of a, a new um, buzzword in philanthropy now is trust-based philanthropy. You know, foundations trusting the grantees to, to really know where the key issues are and the best strategies for um, uh, you know attacking those 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 challenges there, and that's been the the cultural DNA of Candida the entire time I was a grantee, well over a decade. Um, you know the overused term is partnership, but really one where you know you would sit down and you would talk about here's my reality of what we're we're facing at the time I was at South Face. and Candida was first of all always a great advisor because they're out there talking to to dozens of other uh, nonprofits and thought leaders, and so they could bring those ideas back and help shape um, a program. And uh, yeah, I'll give you a real-world example. Um, you know, Southface was doing work in energy efficiency and solar and the general term green building back then. Uh, and we had a conversation with um, Barry Berlin, who was uh, our gatekeeper to the Candida Fund at the time. And he brought up the idea about, well, gee, all these nonprofits out there that own their own buildings, you know, they've got high utility bills. And if we could get, help them save money on those utility bills, that's giving them money that they can shift into their mission-related work. Mm -hmm. uh, and then he took it one step. Barry's a, a, a finance guy. So he said, you know, that's like giving them an endowment. That just keeps on giving year after year because we do the energy and water efficiency uh, upgrades in year one well those savings are going to be continuing on for years and years and you know today uh over 400 buildings have participated in it's, it's called good use today when it was first started it was called grants to green we did a little bit of restructuring and came up with a new name but there are over 400 buildings that are saving i think it's about four million bucks um, in their energy and water bills. And again, that's money that goes to feed kids at a, at a, a school after school program or, or goes to help uh, an arts group keep the lights on um, or real story, keep the heat on in winter so the dancers mm -hmm. <laughs> could, could practice and, and perform. Uh, their customers wouldn't freeze to death. So, um, so that, you know, that sense of partnership is true. The sense of trust-based philanthropy, I'll, I'll go back and, and use the good use program. Uh, we had a, uh, the program manager who was just doing a great job, had a, a, a career um, enhancing opportunity, so they, they left us. And there was a, a younger um, program uh, assistant on our staff, happened to be an African-American woman, uh, and we said, this is the woman who can really grow this program. And Candida said, you know, we trust you. You know your staff. That person's not too inexperienced or that person 
you know, doesn't have an engineering degree or whatever, because it was really a people program of working with nonprofits. And so that sort of trust-based philanthropy, not just in the program area, but also in the operations area. Um, and, and another thing I would say about Candida, you hear this term all the time about capacity building. Mm -hmm. We want to do a capacity building grant. And, you know, what does that mean? You know, <laughs> <laughs> let you build a, a storage shed out in the back so you could store more stuff or something. But they really understood that, um, you know, there's a budget for a program, but you've got to support your staff. You know, they've got to do continuing ad. Obviously, they've got to have health insurance and things like that. And so Candida always understood that there was a much bigger cost than just doing a program. And so building that capacity was important and taking a chance on new programs. When we first started our relationship with Candida, we did not have a significant policy uh, program. And so in the conversation, we said, you know, we're not, I mean, Doing the education and the research and the technical assistance work that we were doing was important, but if you don't change the rules of the game, which is really what policy is about, you know, you're always going to be pushing a rock up a hill. Mm -hmm. And so they were able to, or, or saw the need for us to develop more policy-oriented work uh, and build that capacity. Now, speaking of pushing a rock up the hill, I'm sure that you have seen the field of sustainability transition quite a bit. It's I've been in this work now almost 25 years and now 16 years in city government in the public mm -hmm. sector, and it has drastically changed um, and for the better. And mm -hmm. before it was like pushing a rock up a hill and uh, putting a square, square peg in a round hole. But now it's, it seems like it's a more of a common understanding um, nomenclature and infusion um, of best practices than it had been in, in years. How, how have you seen the sustainability profession uh, mature? A uh, couple of, uh, first of all, very difficult question. A <laughs> couple of answers I'll, I'll throw out that way. Uh, first of all, it is a profession now. Mm -hmm. um, it's not just people who are passionate about addressing some of the challenges that we have. Yes. in our, our world. I mean, it is a profession. By the way, uh, the Southeast Sustainability Directors Network has done a terrific job of, of rising up the professionalism um, in our region and, and well beyond. Um, so that, that's important. Uh, I think we've gotten uh, more science-based uh, in our approach. So we sort of all understood that pollution is bad. <laughs> And, yes. and that protecting resources is good, but but we we actually know now a lot more about how to uh, to be more sustainable than we did before. Um, and I think another um, aspect of of our movement, and I like the term movement for what we do, because mm -hmm. um, it's not just about finding a better mousetrap. It's also about values and and and. Uh, bringing people to a position where they realize we need change uh, and that we need to be equitable, equitable in doing that. And that leads me into the other aspect of our, our um, movement that I think is, has changed that's very important. We always talked about sustainability as being a three-legged stool. There was the environment, there was the economy, and there was equity. Well, that third leg of the stool, the equity leg, it often 
was, you know, delegated to, oh, well, we'll talk about that later. Um, and so later is now. Mm-hmm. Um, we are actually seriously um, integrating equity across everything that we're doing, I think, in sustainability when we do it well. Dennis, you're going to be doing a convening of thought leaders uh, across the, the region in in, the, in a little bit of time here. And uh, one of the topics that they are going to be having discussion about is regenerative design. And uh, every everyone I've spoken to so far has a different definition. I'd love to hear what your definition is of regenerative design. Well, First of all, I'm not only not surprised, I am thrilled that they all have a different definition because I think the definition of anything as broad as regenerative design needs to be within the context of what you're you're talking about. So, um, you know, if you're a plumber, regenerative design is going to mean something very different than if you were an architect or an architect versus a, a, a urban planner. And so, so that's good. My definition. Um, the built environment has an Im- impact on the natural environment. We've known that for a long time. When we burn coal to generate electricity to power our buildings, there's a lot of pollution that comes from burning coal. It also requires a lot of wa- water. So there's many impacts on the, the natural environment. But there's also impacts on people, on the socioeconomic systems, if you want to have a technical term to say people. And so, for example, thousands of people die each year from burning coal to generate electricity. Mm -hmm. Often those people that are dying are not the people that are using the electricity because the pollution from coal gets distributed globally. Um, Here in Georgia, for example, where I'm located, there's a warning on every freshwater lake in the state that says danger, you know, uh, eating fish from this lake can harm your health. And so I would argue that that means that we're not using regenerative design in the way we meet the electrical energy needs of our state. Mm-hmm. So, um, so, my, so my definition again is how do we lessen the impact on the natural environment, but also on uh, people, health, uh, emotional well-being would be a part of that as well, not just your physical health. So, but you can actually use the term regenerative design for a, a lot of things other than the built environment. It, actually, the term regenerative really comes more from the agricultural world about regenerative soils. We have depleted agricultural soils so much uh, in our uh, our society that we are seriously having to regenerate those soils to add more organic matter to return vital nutrients to the land so that um, plants will thrive. Mm-hmm. Well, it will be a fascinating discussion amongst the attendees on, on, on that. And, and just like you said, it is, it, it can be very broad and it can be how you define it, how you yeah. define regenerative design. I am so excited. I am going to learn an awful lot from that discussion. Now, this will be the first time attendees will have gotten together in, in, in nearly uh, several years. And so I'm sure there'll be really um, rich discussions. Well, uh, regenerative design, these are grantees. Uh, they're wonderful nonprofits that are working in uh, urban planning. They're working in low-income housing and weatherization. Uh, they're working in um, 
returning materials from the building sector back to be reused again. So, so diverse interests there for sure. But they all have a connection with regenerative uh, design and regenerative thinking. And so uh, I think it, uh, I agree with you. It will be a rich discussion. Now, your work, Dennis, has been predominantly in the Southeast, uh, between Southeast and the work with Candida, and the majority, if not all the attendees, will be primarily regionally in, in the South. Um, how do you see regenerative design uh, potentially being different in the South, if it is at all, compared to other regions in the country, or even beyond the country? Well, the laws of physics work the same in the South as it does <laughs> elsewhere. Yes. But sometimes uh, other aspects of how we approach things um, in the South can be a little bit different. And I'm a native Southerner. I'm very proud of my region. But, um, you know, we tend to think of the South as being uh, maybe less sophisticated than some other regions. I don't find that to be true at all. I mean, the, the talent pool in the South on regenerative design is as deep as anywhere in the world. Um, and so now, do we have some special considerations here? We tend to shy away from government regulation, perhaps more than some other areas. And so um, building codes would be a, a good example. Um, I can't think of a Southern politician ever winning election by having a campaign pledge that I'm going to raise the standards, the building code standards. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, That's but true. that is, you know, that policy is important if we are going to address climate change. Mm-hmm. And so so we have to approach that a little bit differently, such that um, when we raise the standards uh, for building codes, particularly energy efficiency building codes, much of our region imports its energy. And so higher building codes are actually good for local economies in the South because that means those energy dollars don't go elsewhere. Mm-hmm. They stay in the community Um, and recycle and generate economic development. So that's how I might approach talking about um, uh, building codes, which leads to uh, economic development. And by the way, that's also how you address climate change is Mm -hmm. showing the, the, the multiple benefits. And, and I think this is true everywhere. The South is not unique. I mean, you, you have to use vocabulary that the audience is going to be comfortable with. That doesn't mean you change your message. You just might change how you deliver the message. And uh, with getting together this um, thought leaders in the Southeast, what are your hopes as an outcome, both from, from what do you hope that they gain from the gathering as well as what you hope to gain? Two things, really. Um, first of all, they have a lot of wisdom. And so we want to be a sponge. I mean, we want to absorb all of that wisdom and we will put together some sort of a report and deliver that out through our network and their network. So here's what, you know, a half a dozen thought leaders um, in our region feel is the state of the field of regenerative design, as well as what are some directions we should be looking at. And this is going to be really short term thinking. Uh, you know, we're not talking about what is our region going to be like 50 years from now. Uh, I mean, this is intended to be a little bit more um, of a roadmap than of a broad vision statement. So I want to know, okay, what are they doing in Chattanooga, Tennessee today? Uh, and what do you want to be doing five, 10 years from now? Mm-hmm. And sort of that kind of time frame. Um, 
And so, so I think that's an important part, absorbing that wisdom and, and, and getting it out to, to policymakers, industry leaders, or whatever. Um, and we did this convening once before, about five years ago, um, and because of the pandemic and other things, we have not been able to do it again. But when we did it the first time, and I'm sure it's going to happen the second time, these organizations, they are very entrepreneurial nonprofits. They are going to be talking about how they can collaborate together um, and sharing ideas, maybe sharing some resources. Um, and this is a critical time because there is so much in the way of federal resources coming to our region that if we don't collaborate, those resources will not be used wisely. And let me just give another shout out to the Southeast Sustainability Directors Network, the resource center that y'all have put together to help local governments uh, know what federal resources are available and how to be competitive in going after those resources, I think is uh, immensely valuable to our region. And Dennis, I love the the comment about collaboration. I, I recall that back in probably the 90s when I was in, in, in the field of sustainability, environmental organizations, as, as slim as they were, I probably could count them on one hand, um, they tended to be very competitive and territorial and have definitely seen uh, the opening of the doors for collaboration, the need for it, and the value added of that. So I love that that you included that. It's essential. It really is to continue to meet the needs. For sure. And certainly Candida is is one of the great things about Candida Fund is that uh, you are a catalyst for that and one of the hence the reasons of this gathering to, to see that come to fruition. And we are certainly in an interesting time with uh, the funding that is coming down. Um, it's exciting time. It really is. Mm -hmm. So, well, Dennis, thank you. Did you want to add anything else? Well, um, you know, I, I'm... I think we're we're moving in the right direction. There are certainly still some barriers um, that we face as a region, as a nation, and you know globally for sure. But um, you know, uh, I'm optimistic that we'll overcome those barriers. Um, solar is a great example. Um, you know, solar now is actually the cheapest source of electricity in our region and in much of the world. And so, you know, there are a lot of barriers to solar. Uh, that that still remain, but overall, uh, it's moving along. And when you look at uh, a host of barriers, there's almost always kind of a, it funnels down to there's one super barrier, um, and that is the price we pay for things does not reflect the true cost of what that thing is. And let's just use um, energy as an example. Um, there are so many subsidies to traditional sources of energy, whether it's coal or oil, natural gas, nuclear. Um, and we don't pay the true cost of those energy sources. But we, um, And so if we can change our economic system so that we stop subsidizing bad things like polluting energy sources um, and encourage good things like clean energy sources. Um, and that's true not just for energy, but it's true for buying um, sustainably um, uh, harvested uh, wood. It's true certainly about water. You know, we um, subsidize the cost of water waste uh, and do not encourage water efficiency. It's certainly true with uh, uh, solid waste. 
you know, we subsidize the cost of landfilling and 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 do not encourage recycling, or more importantly, we do not encourage regenerative design, so that we do not generate all this waste. Mm-hmm. So if I had to talk about one thing where I feel like we really need to focus on is is getting this this um, cost barrier, first cost barrier, um, and I think the way to do that is to address it with policy, mm-hmm. which leads me back to the work of the Southeast Sustainability Directors Network is so important. And I cannot tell you how proud Candida is to be a partner with y'all. Well, thank you. And I I can speak on on behalf of SSDN that we feel very similarly. So right back at you, Dennis. Okay. Okay, thank you. It's been a pleasure. You're listening to a special edition of Green Minds, a podcast of the Southeast Sustainability Directors Network. You can check out more information about SSDN on their website at southeastsdn.org. And a special thank you to our guest on this feature on Pioneer Practitioners in Regenerative Design. This Green Minds podcast features Dennis Creech, Fund Advisor for Sustainability. It was Dennis's idea to host this podcast series on regenerative design. So huge thank you to him and the Candida Fund. And the Green Minds podcast episode series on regenerative design is brought to you by Candida Fund. You can find out more information at their website at candidafund.org. Now we're going to head over to Catherine Mercer Baggett as she has a conversation with Sean Aurora, the director of the Candida Building at the Georgia Tech Institute on this SSDN Green Minds podcast. I'm Catherine Mercer Baggett, and I'm co-hosting with Laurel Creech. In this episode, I get to speak with Sean Aurora. He is the director of the aptly named Candida Building on the Georgia Institute of Technology campus. I had the privilege to tour the building with Sean a few years ago, and I wish everyone had the same opportunity. For full disclosure, I confess that I admire Sean's inspiring perspective, and I think he should be a sustainability motivational speaker. Besides the Candida Fund and its remarkable impact on the regenerative design ecosystem, we talk about the limitations of financing real estate development on the deployment of regenerative design at a large scale. And in closing, Sean shares examples of success in Metro Atlanta. Hello, Sean, and thank you for granting us an interview. We truly appreciate your time. Uh, To get started, what can you tell us about you? I understand that you don't have a background in construction, design, or sustainability. I would say that I have a background in sustainability and that I've been very passionate about taking care of this one planet we call home since a very young age, but as life would have it, I went to Emory University and majored in history, then went to Emory Law School, and then ended up in the world of international trade and international tax. About seven years into my career, I decided I gotta take control of my life and align my passion and my profession. And so I started volunteering at Atlanta nonprofits who are focused on sustainability in the built environment while I was working full time. And eventually I networked and volunteered my way into a position at South Base Energy Institute, now called South Base Institute. And I was there for eight and a half years, got exposure to the full breadth of sustainability issues 
as they relate to the built environment. Got a chance to work on public policy, community engagement, writing energy action plans, 100% clean energy plans, and just building a network of individuals and organizations that from their respective vantage points want to move our state and our region towards better. When the opportunity to apply for this role as director of what would eventually become Georgia's first fully certified living building, when that opportunity presented itself, I went for it and the rest is history. So you are now at the very forefront of sustainability, energy efficiency, you're into living buildings. It sounds really amazing. Can you tell us a little bit more about the organization behind it and what your daily work looks like? Well, there are two organizations, there are three organizations behind the Candida building. The first is actually International Living Future Institute. That is the organization that thought of this audacious, amazing, holistic green building certification program. So they thought of it and they administer it, uh, improve it, you know, version 1.0, version 2.0, et cetera. They are based out of Seattle, Washington, of course. <laughs> the, the second organization is the Candida Fund a family-based philanthropic organization that you know, has lots of uh, focus areas. But interestingly enough, if you take a look at their focus areas, they all kind of overlap. And sustainability is a theme across all of those focus areas. The Candida Fund wanted to bring a fully certified living building to the Southeast. The idea being, if you can make a net positive energy building in the hot, humid South. You can do it anywhere. And then the third organization is Georgia Tech. It was not a given that the Candida Fund would select Georgia Tech as a partner, but Georgia Tech being an internationally renowned research institution with that megaphone of being able to project what it's doing globally and also, this wasn't our first rodeo. I mean, the Candida building is just part of a continuum of sustainability for Georgia Tech. And so for those reasons, it also, it also helps that the Candida Fund is Atlanta-based and we are in Atlanta. You know, for all those reasons, the Candida Fund partnered with Georgia Tech. Here we are. So those three organizations, again, are the International Living Future Institute, the Brain trust of the Living Building Challenge, the Candida Fund, the visionary and the financier, or as I like to say, the investor in this endeavor of a living building in the Southeast, Georgia Tech, the partner, the owner, and now the proselytizer of what it is that we've accomplished here in Atlanta. So it's not the last example of a living building in our region. How do you see the role of the Candida building um, beyond just existing and, and being able to say, oh, we have one in the Southeast? What do you feel the mission is beyond that? Fortunately, I don't have to think it. It is, uh, 
it was part of the DNA and it is the reason why the building exists. So the way I explain it is that the building exists to prove that we can do it here. Net positive energy, net positive water, having diverted more waste from the landfill than we sent to the landfill during the construction process, beginning your life zero carbon pollution, healthy materials. I mean, the list goes on and on. The building exists so we can prove that it can be done here. But the mission of the building is to do more of it. The advocates who are saying we can do more of it, we could point to living buildings in Portland, Seattle, Massachusetts. We don't have any credibility. That's over there. But when we point to a building over here in Atlanta, in the South, the mission gains legitimacy. The building exists to prove it can be done so we can do more of it. That's the mission. The mission gains legitimacy by having a building here in our backyard. That is the back and forth. And so the Candida building director and staff and the design team, all of us are still part of this mission. We get legitimacy by being able to point back to this thing right here in our backyard. I believe that Candida Building was the first one in the Southeast to be part of the Living Building Challenge. Correct me if I'm wrong. I hope I am, but I have a feeling that I am no, not. The Living Building Challenge has tiers and there's a fully certified living building and then there's steps below. Georgia, and this is a situation where we can be pleasantly wrong. Georgia actually has a pedal certified building, materials pedal certified building. It is, okay, I want to say it's Mohawk Industries, one of their buildings up in North Georgia. And the Kanita building is the most intensively used, the most programmed living building of its scale in the Southeast right now, perhaps globally never saying this in a bombastic or boastful way. I would love for our building to no longer be the it building in this world sooner rather than later, right? right. It, it, the, the goal is to be outshined, outperformed, out square footed, out. The goal is to not be the focal point for much longer. Are you seeing that there's a development of an interest for regenerative design in Atlanta, Georgia, the Southeast? Absolutely. Is it at scale? No. Are we getting projects that have the ability to continue the amplification, to continue the refinement of what we what we have done to lower soft costs and lower hard costs? And the answer to that is yes. So I am excited that there are for-profit players, non-profit players who are not higher education institutions, and some of our peers in the higher education world all pursuing buildings with the goal of having their building be, or buildings be, fully certified living buildings. 
I'm pretty sure there are some common barriers. I can think of a few, but what are the critical ones that we need to overcome? The most critical barrier ultimately is upfront cost. I think that people who manage buildings understand that you've got to pay attention to operating costs, but you don't have a building to, cons- to be concerned about if it never gets built. And whether a building gets built is a first cost question. Until the funding mechanisms take a more holistic life cycle view of infrastructure, it's not just buildings, it's all built infrastructure, then we're forever going to be in this upfront cost versus operating cost dilemma. And then even in operating costs, if the externalities, or to use a different word, if your pollution is subsidized and you don't have to pay the full cost of your pollution, then why would you ever voluntarily pay the full cost of your pollution? That is what a living building does. A living building says, we are voluntarily going to internalize the full cost of our pollution and therefore we will divert more waste from the landfill than we sent to the landfill. Or to put it another way, we say it is so exorbitantly expensive to throw anything away that we're gonna divert more than we throw away. And clearly that's not where the market is at when anywhere between 25 and 30% of new construction material just gets thrown away. Those are the barriers to scale. It's like you're living in two different worlds. And as we try to get living buildings and regenerative buildings out of the world of donor funded and into the world of market, the market is facing those realities where a fully certified market non-donor funded building is going to have to make it pencil out given that the conventional building doesn't have any incentive to care about 100% stormwater diversion or 90% stormwater diversion, not pooping and drinking water, and the list goes on and on. What really excites me is that we do have some corporate players in the Southeast who are attempting to build to living building challenge standards, regenerative building standards, and we're talking about 100,000 plus square foot buildings. That's exciting. Yes, it definitely is. And I think we might have to revisit the model of the developer builder who absorbs that initial cost and then tries to turn around and sell the product to someone else who will be operating it and using it. The life cycle of the cost is kind of broken down into pieces that are not comprehensively looked at. And, and there, there is a mismatch as well, if you're going to build it and then sell it, you don't have to ever worry about the operating costs. I get the opportunity and the privilege, the luck, the honor of speaking to individuals who are decision makers in the state of Georgia. And I've had that responsibility for a long time because before I was here, as I said, I was at South Face where I did engage policymakers. I feel that My ability to have tough and honest conversations has gotten easier for two reasons. One, I think that despite 
the tenor, despite the tenor of, forget it, man, people aren't talking to each other in Washington. I'm not even going to try to, people aren't talking to each other in Washington, but I find at the state level, once you get, once you get people in the rooms, man, everybody knows what's up. Water is a finite resource. You got too much of it. You got too little of it. You know, water always wins. You can have honest conversations about where's the price of electricity going in the state of Georgia. We all know where it's going. It's going up. No judgment as to why it's going up. It's going up. There's no longer a doubt that the energy future is a renewable energy plus storage future. I mean, we have the Western Hemisphere's largest solar panel manufacturing plant, and we're on the cusp of becoming like the EV state from a battery perspective, from a manufacturing perspective. Thankfully, a lot of things have made the conversation a lot easier. And I tell them, we are going to have to change the way we build. It can be a voluntary decision where we plan for what we know is coming down, or it can be reactive. And when it's reactive, you lose planning, you lose efficiency, you lose a lot of things. So I sincerely hope that the big property owners in the state of Georgia and the state of Georgia is the largest property owner in the state of Georgia, starts to think about the capital improvement plans, the building obsolescence, building replacement, and starts thinking, well, as we retrofit buildings, as we deconstruct buildings, break them into their component parts that can be reused and construct new buildings that we think about resiliency in the built environment. We think about operating expenses. We think about healthy materials. And our goal is to bring as many of those decision makers through the Candida building so they can see that it can be done. We take the it can't be done thought off the table and we can have honest conversations about how do we get more of this done for the benefit of the taxpayers, for the benefit of the citizens, and for the benefit of the environment. So you live and breathe regenerative design. Are there places that you look up to for inspiration or people or projects, something that you feel is really working out well? in our area if possible. I know it's a tough one. I feel that the Candida building really is at the forefront and then and then I don't know. There's very few examples I can think of also. How about pieces? There are definitely communities in metropolitan Atlanta that I think have pieces. All right. So Peachtree City, by accident, built this network of golf cart roads. And next thing you know, way before electric vehicles were a thing, you had households that were jumping on their electric golf cart to go to the grocery store. An entire grade-separated network of micro-mobility electric vehicles where you have eliminated the need for a large internal combustion engine for these tiny little trips. Happened by accident. That can serve as a model 
a purpose-built model for other areas, new and sort of reimagined, right? You have all of these micro-mobility vehicles now, options that you don't have to own. We have the ability of reimagining mobility. I want to make sure that people who are listening to this, I am not discounting transit. Huge fan of transit. But everybody knows that there's that last mile connectivity issue with transit and micromobility can be a solution to that last mile connectivity. If we can just make it safer, Peachtree City, I think is nationally renowned as being a place that's done something pretty cool with micromobility. Still staying on the south side, Serenby. It's this master planned, ecologically minded community. But the one thing I want to draw people's attention to about Serenby is that it's a very large community. The wastewater is treated on site through natural systems. So when you flush your toilet, you're going to have a natural district solution for wastewater management. That's pretty awesome. Staying on the south side, staying on the south side of Atlanta, Clayton County's wastewater treatment system, the last phase is a gigantic constructed wetland that has seen wildlife come back and use that man-made constructed wetland as habitat. I mean, it's amazing. You can see it on Google Maps. Those are three examples that I can think of that if we just started taking these pieces and combining them along with what we've done here in one building, you can start seeing that in Metro Atlanta, we have all of these stellar examples of what's been done. And if anyone asks the question, well, what's the long-term viability of some of the technologies that we have in the Candida building, I would just point to the South Face building. They've had composting toilets, foam flush toilets for 15 years now, pervious pavement and sidewalk. So yes, the longevity is there. We have examples. Interface headquarters, Lead Platinum, the most recent version. We have arguably one of the most sustainable stadiums in the world. Emory Water Hub, tapping into a sewer line to extract sewage water and turn it into mechanical gray water. We have lots of examples, pockets of amazingness. This building might bring a lot of those things together in one building, but I think the question you are asking the conversation to go to is how do we now do this at a district scale across an entire campus, across an entire community? We've got the ingredients around us in Metro Atlanta, but I can't think of any one place that's done it all yet, yet. So there's a challenge out there. There's a challenge out there. There are some organizations in metropolitan Atlanta that have the ability of doing this at district scale. And I have reminded them every opportunity I get that they have an opportunity. 
and potentially the ability to do this at district scale. And they, they like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, you know, they do this. And for your listeners, the put your, your thumb and first two, four fingers together to make the money symbol, the, you know, the, where we're going to get the money from. Yeah. It goes back to what we were saying, the challenge of upfront cost. Right. Do you have any parting words you would like to share? Okay. I would, two, two topics on parting words. First, heartfelt thank you to the Candida Fund. The number of organizations that helped make the Candida building possible. I'm talking about nonprofit organizations that were part of this journey. The number of those organizations that are Candida Fund donees, is that a word? The number of nonprofit organizations that were involved with the Candida building who received support from the Candida Fund. In some cases, we didn't even know that they received support from the Candida Fund. It's amazing how this ecosystem of organizations in the equity space, the sustainability space, how the Candida Fund has supported them. A lot of them came together to be part of the Candida building. Goes to show you how special the vision of the Candida Fund was and continues to be. And the other thing I'd like to say in parting words is things are bleak. I'm not even gonna say things look bleak, things are bleak. And there are some weekends where by Sunday I'm down, but I come into this building on Monday and I'm like, we can do it. We just gotta figure out the pathway to scale. The fact that we've done it really gives us hope. And we just got to keep at it. Can't give up. Agreed. I would say those are words of wisdom. Sean, thank you so much for taking your time, sharing your passion. It really was a great pleasure meeting you today. Thank you for listening to this special edition of The Green Minds, a podcast of the Southeast Sustainability Directors Network on the work of the Candida Fund's grantees. I'm Catherine Mercier-Baggett. Thank you, Catherine. Tune in for the next two episodes of SSDN's Green Minds podcast as we continue talking with pioneer practitioners in regenerative design thanks to Candida Fund. You can find out more information about the Candida Fund at candidafund.org.